1 Peter 3 in your Bibles, where I want you to notice again something in Peter's admonition here that includes a connection between this text and a prior experience in Peter's life that I'd really never noticed before. And of course, you know, for nearly 55 years now, I have read this text, I've preached, I've taught from this text multitudes of times. But only recently did I notice the Apostle's familiar words in our text, that these words are really his own personal testimony, both in retrospect and in prospect. Notice verse 12, where Peter is actually quoting the 34th Psalm. He says, For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. And who is he? that will harm you if ye be followers of that which is good. By the way, there are certain television preachers who will quote these two verses and claim that nobody will ever harm you if you're doing what's right. That the eyes of the Lord and the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. Therefore, if you are good and follow Jesus, no weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper. And they'll even quote. Peter said, who is he that will ever harm you? Okay, but the very same Peter also wrote the very next verse. And that verse begins with a word, but. Verse 14, but, and if, ye suffer for righteousness' sake. Oh, man. And if you're not sure that what Peter says here about the righteous suffering, quote, for being righteous, look at verse 17. For it is better. It is better if the will of God be so that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. In other words, if you're going to end up in prison, you'll be devastated if it's for vehicular homicide. But you'll be joyous if you're in jail for going to church or preaching the gospel. That's what he says. Which brings us then to this personal connection with the Apostle Peter that I'd never quite appreciated until last week. The Apostle Peter is talking about suffering. He's talking about injustice and injustice specifically at the hands of those who would do you harm for your doing what's good and right. He's talking about the eyes of the Lord and the ears of the Lord in verse 12 being open unto those who pray in their distress. And it's when I read that that I remembered Acts chapter 12. Now, hear me carefully and we'll pray. 1 Peter 3 was written in A.D. 64. What happened to Peter in Acts chapter 12 was in A.D. 44. It is almost exactly 20 years before today's text. So if you think about, for example, 2004 and now 2024, you have this idea, you have this span of when something tragic and something trying and terrifying happened to Peter in his personal life. And now 20 years later, he writes the absolute perfect response to it. And of course, we also know that three and a half years after this text in 1 Peter, this same apostle who penned these words will give his life, being crucified upside down precisely for following that which is good. So what exactly happened back in Acts 12, and why does it inform today's text so powerfully and perfectly? That's what I all want us to consider here today as we speak on the subject, prison, prayer, and providence. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. 
And dear God, inasmuch as you have convicted me and encouraged me and strengthened me in recent days because of your word, I pray that all of us now will be strengthened, convicted, encouraged, taught through the truth of your word, not the pablum that's being put out in so many mediums today that pretends to be your word, but the truth of your word. May we hear it, embrace it, and then be doers of it for your glory in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Acts chapter 12, I want you to turn there with me if you haven't already. We noted that everything we just read in 1 Peter, the morning's text, that all of that is really on display in Peter's personal walk with God. Acts 12 and verse 1 says, Now about that time Herod the king stretched forth his hands to vex certain of the church. This is the second great persecution, wave of persecution. Verse 2 says, And he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Now folks, don't let that just wash by. This is James, John's brother. The sons of thunder, they were like this. The sons of Zebedee, this is James, the pillar of the church, who was beheaded in this second great, great wave of persecution. And what does Peter say back in 1 Peter when we read it a moment ago? Well, here's what he said. He said, the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. He should know. Chapter 12, verse 3 again says, And because he saw it pleased the Jews. What pleased the Jews? When he killed James, the Sanhedrin was happy about it. When he saw it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to take Peter also. And now Peter's going to die. Verse 5, Peter therefore was kept in prison, but prayer was made without ceasing of the church unto God for him. Okay, here again, beloved, are the words of this very same Apostle Peter. Remember what he wrote in 1 Peter 3, or quoted David, rather. He said, the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous. His ears are open unto their prayers. And there they are. They are praying. In other words, 1 Peter 3 is basically the answer to Acts chapter 12. And in so many ways, it, shows, it sheds a tremendous amount of light on this text in the book of Acts and also in Peter. It sheds light on what God means and God, what God means for us in so many ways. You know, 20 years ago, we had just gone through Y2K, then 9-11, then that housing crisis, three devastating hurricanes, at least in this area. So that, you know what, if you were to write about life in South Florida under COVID and this economy and so forth, it's, it's not as if challenges or trials are anything new to those of you who are in this room right now. The difference in Peter's case is that his words of counsel and his words of experience and the experiences God sent him through in this text are inspired from God. His experiences are divinely recorded in the infallible living word of God. It is a reminder this morning that when you look at this apostle in his own 2004 and then his own, quote, 2024 experiences, it's not enough. And in fact, it's not nearly enough to just look at what happened in Acts 12 and conclude, well, okay, there's a story there. Peter was in jail and some Christians prayed and the apostle was miraculously delivered. Yes, all of that is true. But if you miss the details of this deliverance, because it's very, very real, 
These are details God places in His Word for a reason. It is likely, very likely, you'll miss the entire point, the very lessons that God wants you and I to learn. For example, the first lesson. It's fairly obvious. Number one is a lesson about prayer. Now, folks, here in Acts 12, King Herod had just put to death with a sword the beloved apostle's companion, James. James, again, as you know, is the brother of John. And so what you have now is a man who's a pillar of the New Testament church in its earliest days. He's a beloved brother. He's a family member, and he's executed for his faith. Verse 2, he killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And because he saw it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to take Peter also. Then were the days of unleavened bread. Now hear me carefully. When Herod decided that he was going to arrest Peter as a political move just to make the people happier, it was clear to the two Christians in Jerusalem that Peter is going to experience the exact same fate as James. In other words, he's going to die. He's soon going to be put to death. The only thing is, the last line of verse 3 says, look at it, and again, all the details are given by God. Then were the days, quote, of unleavened bread. What's that mean? Well, that means these were the holy days, and it would mean for Peter a temporary stay of execution. They didn't have executions during Passover. And so now he's got some time. Verse 4. And when he had apprehended him, he put him in prison and delivered him to the four quaternions of soldiers to keep him, intending after Easter to bring him forth to the people. Now, you do know, beloved, again, reason, there's a reason for these details. He says in the Bible that Peter's on death row. He would have died that night were it not for the holiday, holy days. He's guarded by four quaternions of soldiers, Roman soldiers, that's four times four, 16 men, two of which, you'll notice, were chained to each of Peter's legs. Look at verse 6. And when Herod would have brought him forth the same night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and the keepers before the door kept the prison. All right, you get the picture. Here it is. James had just been executed. Four soldiers for each watch of the night, that's 16 men, are guarding him. Two are chained to his arms or his legs. There are three levels of gates, it says, and guards at each one of those gates. Plus added to that, King Herod's determination and motive, all of the people's malicious expectation, they want him to die, and everything pointed to a hopeless situation for this man. And beloved, you know this is true. Suppose it's one of our men. You know that many of the believers there had already considered the fate of Peter to be that of James. He's going to die. But there's one handful of believers who are approaching Peter's dilemma with prayer. Verse 5 again, Peter therefore was kept in prison, but prayer was made without ceasing of the church unto God for him or on his behalf. Now, again, beloved, God does not include that statement in verse 5 as some unconnected incident to this entire story. It's not simply additional information. No, no, no. This statement is set in logical sequence so that we would understand that when God delivers Peter, which he will, as you know, that's how he wrote 1 Peter, that he did so because of the prayers of God's people. 
In other words, God is telling us that earnest prayer, regardless of how bleak the situation or impossible, prayer is the hope of every single believer. And it is through the prayers of God's people that divine power is unleashed in this world. Now let's go back. Sixteen soldiers, two chains, three gates, one wicked ruler, thousands of people. Peter, therefore, was kept. But prayer was made. And prayer was made without ceasing. There really is, beloved, an omnipotent, omniscient prayer hearing, prayer answering God in heaven right now. And it's really too true. Prayer changes things. And it is God's will this morning that whatever your need, whatever our need as a church, and whatever your situation, no matter how bleak it is, it's God's will for you to go to Him and ask Him for help. He wants you to. He wants you to go before Him, get on your knees, and plead and ask Him. You see, but Pastor, I've prayed about things, certain things before, and I, still, and I never got them. I've been praying about something, Pastor, and I still hasn't got, haven't gotten it. Can I ask you a question? The Apostle James, the brother of John who was slain by the sword, do you suppose that the Christians, that any of the believers were praying for him? When he got arrested? When he was put in jail? Do you suppose that his own brother, John, who wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Revelation, the Gospel of John, the great Apostle John, don't you suppose his own brother was, was praying for, on his behalf? And for that matter, some years after this incident, when Peter was arrested again by Rome, don't you suppose that somebody was praying again for him? Yes, they were. And yet we know that just like James here, many years later, Peter would eventually be a martyr, martyred for his faith. In other words, look, it's not that prayer always changes things. It's not that when you pray, you always, we always get what we want. Sometimes the prayer changes nothing immediately in the circumstances. Except it changes you. Because you're the one who's on your knees seeking God and for God's will. Prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance. It's not that. It's cooperating with God's willingness. We did not give our children everything that they ever asked for just because they asked. But we always gave them whatever they asked for that was good for them and best for them. And to that end, God always wants us to ask. He wants us to seek. He wants us to knock on that door. It's like when Andy came home from college after four years, no girl. And then he went back for his fifth year, came back after his master's, still no girl. He said, Dad, I'm going to stop praying for myself. I'm going to pray for others. So he prayed, Lord, give my, give my mother a gorgeous daughter-in-law. <laughs> Well, God answered the prayer when he decided to pray for other people. But that's not, it's, it's true. Prayer is not some automatic sort of wish list. What it is is the hope of every believer. It is the hope of this preacher. It is the hope of every Christian who knows that God is able and that God is listening and wanting to hear our requests. 
How many times as a father I'd say no to one of our boys about some request, hoping they would ask me again when the time was right. And so it is that your children don't stop talking to you, and they certainly don't stop asking for things because sometimes you say no. Or wait a while. But pastor, I prayed that God would remove this this pain, and he didn't. So do you conclude from that that he doesn't want you also to pray about cancer that comes into your life or pray about protection or for wisdom or finances to pray for your children or your job or your marriage? Of course not. And folks, one of the most glaring truths that lies in the details of Peter's experience here is that God who did not deliver James He did not deliver James in answer to so many people's prayer. Did deliver Peter because of the prayers of believers. And it is true this morning that prayer is the hope of every one of us as children of God. Regardless of how dismal, how overwhelming, how insurmountable your certain situation is, prayer changes things and prayer changes you. And prayer really is the supreme act. It is the true supreme act of your faith in God. It proves that you believe God and you believe that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him, as the Bible says in Hebrews. And that brings us to the second lesson of the text. Please follow these. Number one is a lesson of prayer. Number two, you'll notice, is a lesson of patience. Verse three, and because he saw it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to take Peter also. Then were the days of unleavened bread. Okay, now follow this again. Details in the Bible are for a reason. The Bible says that Peter was apprehended. He was handcuffed or whatever. He was arrested at, quote, the time of unleavened bread. This is the period of seven days following the Passover. So a total of eight days. God is telling us that eight days are going to pass. And here are God's people. And they're gathered together in these church houses and they're praying earnestly for Peter's deliverance. They don't want to lose another one of the apostles. So here's the question. When, if, when is God going to grant their prayer request? When will God deliver Peter from that jail? On the first day of unleavened bread? On the second day? The third day? The fourth day? The fifth day? After all, we know, we know his Herod's decision. We know that on the final day, he's going to bring out his prisoner and put him to death in front of everyone. The Sanhedrin hated Peter. He was a leader of the church. He sympathized with Gentiles, of all things. And they were just anxious for the festival to end. But the believers weren't. As far as they were concerned, time was running out. So again, here's your question. When, if at all, is God going to deliver him? Look at verse 6. And when Herod would have brought him forth the same night. What does that mean? What does it mean that when Herod was going to bring him forth the same night? That means that this was the night. It simply means, beloved, that God waited until the very last day. Not day one, not day two or three or four or five or six. On the very last night, the final night before he's going to be executed, that is when the deliverance came. And yes, you've noticed that that's how God works in your life. 
I've noticed it from the days I was in Bible college and my finances were up against the wall and I didn't have the money to pay the bill the next day. And I prayed. And God came through that night. You cry aloud to God, you pray to the Lord, and it comes sometimes to a point of desperation. And then God answers. It's as if God is stretching our faith. And why wouldn't He do that when He knows the future? When He knows what you don't know, that you're going to be okay. It's as if He's making us, causing us to trust in Him to a much higher degree. And this is exactly what God does, and He's not at all secretive about it in His Word. Because these kinds of stories are repeated over and over again in the Bible and over and over and over again in God's people's lives. It reminds us and it teaches us to be patient with God. To be patient with God's will. That if there is a delay or what we think is a delay, it's always for His reason. We might as well learn from it, beloved. We might as well get used to it that God is never in a hurry. In fact, have you ever noticed in this amazing story how almost leisurely God delivered Peter from this jail? Look at verse 7. And behold, the angel of the Lord came upon him. Why did he come upon him? It says, a light shined in the prison and he smote Peter on the side and raised him up. He was asleep. The Bible says in verse 6 he was asleep. Can you imagine the night before you're going to be executed falling asleep? And being in such a deep sleep, the angel has to, boom, kick you. That's some kind of peace of heart. I mean, some of us might be like, I'm going to be up all night waiting. But look what it says. And the angel of the Lord came upon him, and light shined in the prison, and he smote Peter in the side. The light didn't wake him up. And raised him up, saying, Arise up quickly. And his chains fell off from his hands. Now look, at this point, most prisoners obviously would make a run for it. And if you have the powers this angel obviously has, just poof your way out of there. But that's not what God does. Verse 8, <clears throat> look at it. And the angel said unto him, gird thyself, bind on thy sandals. And so he did. And he saith unto him, cast thy garment about thee, your overcoat, and follow me. In other words, the angel wakes Peter up, smikes him on the side, and he says, put your shoes on. Get dressed. Put your coat on. Gird your loins and follow me. Verse 9, And he went out and followed him and wist not, knew not that it was true which was done by the angel, but thought he saw a vision. He thinks he's sleepwalking. I mean, you might. And when we had passed the first and the second ward, they came into the iron gate that leadeth unto the city, which opened to them of his own accord. Automatic gates are nothing new. <laughs> and they went out and passed on through one street, and forthwith the angel departed from him. Now hear me carefully. That's a lot of little detail. That's step by step by step by step of how he got out of the prison. But why? In fact, why didn't God do for Peter what he did for Philip? Remember Philip, the evangelist? He just whisked him away. Took him right out of Samaria, put him right out in the desert, just, whoosh, just like that. Why didn't he just take Peter and whisk him away to Mary's house? Why did Peter have to tie his shoes, get up, gird his loins, pass the first ward, then go past the second ward, and then go to the third gate that leads out into the city? 
and then, and then have to make his own way home. <clears throat> Why this almost leisurely procession? I can tell you one reason why right now, because omnipotence is never in a hurry. But oh, how hard it is for us to learn and to accept that in God's will and in God's plan for our lives. We don't want God to wait till the last possible night. No, do it the first day, the second day. We don't want God to take his time in our lives with our prayers. I used to sit in my old office on Center Street, down that way. And when I say old office, in the new building, my office then. And I would sit there, and I can remember so many times I would pray. Because I would see cars pull in. This was after Sunday school, between Sunday school and church, and I'm in there, and a car would pull in, and I would see them go through, and the little lot, and then they would go out, and then they would go down the alley, and they would go down to the other lot, and they would come back, and they would pull again. And then they would leave. And I'd pray, and I would pray, and I would pray and say, Lord, we need more parking. <clears throat> we actually, there was a lot across the street. Some of you may remember old White House that was there, wood, wood frame home, burned it to the ground. People accused me of burning it to the ground. <clears throat> because we did buy the property. We actually had the fire department come and practice on that house for free. They burned it to the ground. But that wasn't enough. And I remember praying, said, Lord, we need, we had a total of three acres, including all the property, total of three acres there. So I would wait, and I would pray, because in many cases, those were lost people. They were coming late just to look. And I'd say, Lord, when are we going to be able to expand? If it's your will. And that went on for years. But during that time, we prayed. And now I know. I know so much more of what I didn't know then. But one thing I really know is that he doeth all things well. That I can rest in his schedule. On the last night, Peter's delivered in his own time. God leads him out of that prison. And the reason is that God in his majesty and in his wisdom is never in a hurry. It teaches us a very important and needed lesson about patience. Number one, a lesson about prayer. Number two, a lesson about patience. Number three, and finally, I want you to notice a lesson about persistence. <clears throat> and I'm going to say this. This is the one maybe that Christians need the most next to prayer. Verse 10. When they were past the first and second ward, they came into the iron gate that leadeth unto the city, which opened to them of his own accord. And they went out and passed on through one street, and forthwith, that means immediately, Instantly, the angel departed from him. Now, folks, don't miss this. It says, as soon as Peter was past the guards, unshackled, past the gates, <clears throat> and as soon as he was in the dark streets, forthwith, immediately that angel left. He's gone. You know, when I read that, I think about how God has worked in my life, in our church's life, and it's just the way God works. And then, in fact, one of the great keys, one of the great keys to the entire Christian life is, here is Peter. He couldn't, he could not have come from those chains without a miracle. This man, Peter, could not have passed those wards without a miracle. 
He couldn't have gotten past that gate, that iron gate, without a miracle. But once all those miracles happen and he's outside, he can find his way to Mary's house. And he can find his way to Mary's house without a miracle. He can make his own way through the city. There's two interesting statements. Look at verse 11. And when Peter was, quote, come to himself, he said. The other is verse 12. And when he, Peter, had considered the thing. In other words, folks, now follow this. Here's the apostle, the great apostle. He's sitting in an empty street while the city sleeps. He's left there alone. The angel's gone. He'd just seen that angel. He'd just been miraculously delivered. He's dazed, no doubt. He's amazed. But when he comes to himself and when he considers the thing in his mind, he realizes, "Uh uh-oh, I'm a fugitive. I'm escapee. I got to get out of here. Where shall I go? To whose home shall I go? I know. I'm going to go to Mary's house. That's John Mark's mother. And being braced by the night air, he starts running. And beloved, in that small, almost insignificant detail and moment in the story is one of the great secrets of the Christian life. And that is persistence. That is is the, the lesson and the truth that we have duty. We have something that we're supposed to do. Personal understanding. That God doesn't do for us what he knows that we can do for ourselves. So it is that God could have. Of course he could have taken Peter right out of the prison and stuck him in Mary's house. God can do anything that he wants to do. But in this text, after he is brought out, God leaves Peter to his own courage, his own common sense, and his own commitment to doing the will of God. And this same down-to-earth common experience of life continues throughout this entire deliverance. And again, this is not an accident of detail. Look at verse 13. And so now he's at Peter's house, or Mary's house, and as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a damsel, a young lady, teenager, came to hearken, named Rhoda. And when she knew Peter's voice, she opened not the gate for gladness but ran in and told how Peter stood before the gate. Well, that wasn't very smart. I'm going to be easy on Rhoda. I don't know if she was blonde. (laughs) Heard about the blonde on the one side of the river and the other side of the river, and she said, hey, can you tell me how to get across? And the other blonde said, duh, you're already across on the other side. Anyway. I mean, she's left Peter. Who's there? It's Peter. Now, remember, they've been praying all night, right? It's Peter. What? Leaves him out there for the guards to get him. (laughs) Verse 14, and when she knew Peter's voice, she opened not the gate for gladness. Now I get it. She was so excited, so happy. She ran in and told how Peter stood before the gate. And they said unto her, thou art mad. You're crazy, girl. But she constantly affirmed that it was even so. Then said they, it is his angel. They still couldn't believe it. You know, that's so typical of us. They're arguing over who's really at the gate. It's not Peter. No, I promise you it's him. No, it's a guard. It's somebody. It's a trick. No, it's him. I know his voice. Oh, then it's his angel. What have they been praying for? Look at verse 16. But Peter continued knocking. What a scene. 
It's me. And when they had opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Can you imagine? You've just been miraculously delivered from a maximum security prison by an angel, and 30 minutes later, you can't get your friends to open the door. <laughs> Verse 17, but he beckoning unto them with a hand to hold their peace, declared unto them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. Can I stop here for a minute? I didn't plan on saying this. The Lord brought him out? Why doesn't the angel get any props? I mean, twice earlier as well, Peter praises God because he says, the Lord brought me out. I mean, Peter could have easily started a worldwide ministry. The Apostolic Angelic Miracle Organization. That's ammo, by the way, A-M-M-O. That's pretty good. But this isn't about angels. It's only modern-day Christians who get fixated by angels. The real believers are fixated by the omnipotent God. And he gives credit where credit's due. He says, the Lord did this. It's about fearful believers praying to an omnipotent God and God answering those prayers. And then those same believers not believing the answer. Now, it can't be Peter. We need to go back and pray for him to be delivered. Must be his angel. How often we do it. You know, sometimes we will adopt any ridiculous hypothesis for some answered prayer except that God just provided that God knew and heard. And the lesson here of responsibility and duty is clear. We pray. God does for us what we can't do. And then whenever God does intervene, we must do our part. This is how God works. I went to school with guys in college who would, who would pray, and they would all the time ask God, pay my bills, pay my bills, but they wouldn't go get a job. They wouldn't even try. They never finished school. They, they could not keep their feet on the ground because they had no responsibility weighing on their shoulders to call them down. But God doesn't work that way. God delivered Noah and his family, but Noah had to spend years, 100 years, building that great big ark. God did his part. He had to do his part. God miraculously delivered Paul and Luke, remember, from shipwreck, but they still had to swim. They still had to go find a piece of a board and float all the way to that island. God raised Jairus' daughter from the dead, but Jesus told the parents, make sure you feed her right now. This is how God works. God raised Lazarus from the dead, but still the men had to go and roll away the stone and unloose. Persistence is the duty of every believer. Look at verse 21, and we're going to close. And upon a set day, Herod... You know, the house of Herod was as wicked and vile as any political family who ever lived. They were vile to the core. And upon a set day, Herod arrayed in royal apparel. Of course he was. He sat upon his throne and made an oration unto them. And the people gave a shout, saying, It is the voice of a God and not of a man. Boy, he was riding high. Killed James. And immediately... The angel of the Lord smote him. I wonder if it was the same one. Because he gave not God the glory, and he was eaten of worms, and he gave up the ghost, but the word of God grew and multiplied. Josephus, the Jewish historian in Antiquities, wrote almost exact detail of Herod's death like this. 
It says, but the word of God grew and multiplied. You know, all these believers, think about this for a moment. What was it we read earlier in 1 Peter? It's, he said, the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous. His ears are open unto their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. But let's go back to God's timetable. There were believers here, between here and here, who were saying it's not fair. Why is this man still in charge? Why is he getting away with what he's getting away with? All the wickedness and evil that he's doing. I thought the Bible said the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. Well, I think you can see that it's still is God saw in other words he saw his ears he saw he heard Peter in that prison and God heard the prayers of those in Mary's house and God dealt with the enemies of Christ which is to say this hear me when James the apostle of our Lord was murdered and when Peter the apostle of our Lord is delivered in both cases, God himself is on the throne because God is always on the throne. Let me ask you this. What should you be praying about today and you're not? You're worrying about it. You're talking to other friends about it. You're moving chess pieces around because of it. But what, do you, what do you, should you be praying about right now, today, in your life, in your family, in your business, with your children, with your marriage, but you're not praying about it? What have you been praying about? And you now you need patience and faith to keep praying, to keep knocking, as Jesus said. Being persistent. Maybe this morning you're here and your heart is bitter because unlike Peter, you're the James of this text. You weren't delivered from some harm, it seems, some physical malady, some injustice at work. And maybe because of that, instead of Peter, you know, as Peter and John were walking along and Jesus told Peter, you're going to die for me one day, Peter turned and said, what about John? And Jesus said, what's that to you? Perhaps this morning you need to be reminded simply that a miracle-working God also expects you to do your part. That a miracle-working God who is omnipotent and omniscient, who could send the angel of the Lord if he wanted to, to deliver you from anything still wants you to do what you can do right now where you are. One thing is for sure. I doubt that we'll see 2044. I mean, that's my personal opinion, just because of the second coming. But if we do 20 years from now, we'll know that this book is still true. And that no matter what happens between now and if there's 20 years from now, we know that God is on his throne. And this same God is a prayer hearing and a prayer answering God. And God's people said, let's bow our heads, shall we, for just a moment. We're going to pray in a moment. And as we do every Sunday morning here at Beacon Baptist, we're going to have a time of invitation. It's a time for you just to do business with the Lord in your heart. Maybe make a public decision if that's God's will. But for sure, it's a time for you to allow the Word of God and the Holy Spirit of God to continue speaking to you. <clears throat> I wonder who'd say this morning, Pastor Blair, like I'm, I'm a child of God. This whole story about the gospel that Peter would go on to preach, that he would give his life for because it's true that Jesus died for our sins, that he was buried, that he was resurrected, and ascended to the Father, I've, I've accepted that. I've, I've accepted Jesus as my personal Savior. And I'm saved by the grace of God. 
But as a Christian, I needed this reminder. This is why the Bible is given to us, beloved. It's given to us. It's not just stories. To teach us and show us how God works in the lives of believers. Pastor, I'm saved today by his grace, but I needed some reminders that I heard today, and God is speaking to my heart with heads bowed. Who would say that? Would you lift your hands if, God, if, that, if that describes you? And amen and praise God for that. The Christian life is a growth process. You learn to trust God more and more. So that when you finally do get to that point of eternity, death's gate, there is no fear. There is only the words of Paul, I'm ready, I'm ready. And Peter, Pastor, I'm here today and I don't know for sure that I'm saved. And in a group this size, there would be some, if not many. Maybe you're religious, maybe you're a good person, a decent person. But the gospel doesn't teach that decent people and good people go to heaven. It teaches that believers, those who have accepted Jesus, sons of God, go to heaven. So Jesus said, you must be born again. And that comes by faith. The wages of sin is death, eternal death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Pastor Blalock, I don't know that I've accepted that gift, but I want to. Could we pray for you? Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. No one's going to come to you or embarrass you, but could we pray? I'm not sure today that I'm saved and my sins are forgiven, but I want to be sure. Who would say that? Would you lift your hand high enough to where we can see it and just pray for you with heads bowed? God bless you and God bless you. And amen for these several. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. We're going to pray in a moment and have a time of invitation. Brother Andy will be here at the front. If you need to speak with someone, that means you could literally step out of the pew, down the aisle, and speak with him and pray with him. Also, the altar is here for any believers. And then also, as we had the last several weeks, if it's a public decision like joining the church, you come forward or baptism. Or right there in your pew, let God speak to your heart. Father, thank you for your word. And as we learn more and more about what it means to be a Christian, the truth of what it means, not from television or a charlatan, but the truth of what it means that, yes, we must, we must through much tribulation enter the kingdom of God. As we learn that we can pray and seek your face and that you're all-powerful and that you're in control and that the face of the Lord is against them that do evil, we can trust you. We can fear not because of evildoers and we don't have to envy the wicked and we can be content with such things as we have. These truths change our lives, dear God, and we thank you for them. And for these who've asked for prayer, Strengthen them. For those who are not sure about salvation, draw them to the cross and to Jesus, your son, please. In Jesus' precious name.